Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to CPF Firewire. I'm President of California Professional Firefighters, Brian Rice, and your host. When the coronavirus hit the shores of the U.S., some of the earliest cases were in California and uh, more specifically Santa Clara County. I think back to the first part of March, we were in Washington, D.C. as part of a delegation with the IFF, firefighters from across the nation, uh, doing our annual legislative conference. Uh, late one afternoon, it was I think it was either a Tuesday or a Wednesday, we had a sit down and were notified of the developing uh, situation in San Jose, California with the San Jose Fire Department and our brothers and sisters in Local 230, the San Jose Firefighters. That one day, that afternoon, that truly was a moment when we knew that we have a significant problem. The San Jose Fire Department was hit hard, um, probably the hardest hit in California, um, potentially one of the hardest hit early on in the nation. And the amazing part of it all was they didn't know what they were dealing with, but they, st- they stayed on their post and they answered the calls. Today on the Firewire, um, we want to tell the story of how San Jose firefighters and uh, the fire department and Local 230 have been affected by the coronavirus outbreak, the challenges that they faced uh, as they answered the call for service, and how their story reflects Um, really the larger issues that our members face while on the front lines of this pandemic. Joining me today is Sean Caldor. Sean is the president of San Jose Firefighters Local 230. He is also uh, a captain with the San Jose Fire Department. Sean is a a veteran of uh, nearly 15 years. I want to welcome you here to the Firewire. It's fair to say you guys were ground zero for how this thing broke and, and um, can you just talk to me a little bit, um, a little bit about the early days, how it started, and then we can just kind of build off of that to to where you are today um, in in the response process and the recovery process. Sure. So if we go back in time a little bit, uh, we had our eyes on this as a union, as a fire department, and really our our medical teams watching what was going on in China. We were all reading the newspapers, and early January reports started to come out. And those reports were very clear saying there's no proof of person-to-person spread. No healthcare workers have become infected. Um, and then towards the end of January, there started to be reports that people had traveled from China. And so our department was proactive and put out a notice saying PPE should be used. Here's the type of virus. It is this novel coronavirus. Um, if you come into contact with people who've traveled from China. And so we began asking those questions Right at the end of January, even our dispatchers asking on dispatch and giving us a notification in kind of the first week of January, uh, sorry, first week of February. As we went through February, though, I think we were all a bit um, thinking that is the appropriate protection and we'd be good. But what was really happening is the virus was starting to spread and spread early and aggressively here in Santa Clara County. And we we didn't realize it at all. It was the end of February when our first member started to feel unwell around February 22nd. Um, Several members before that actually felt they had minor symptoms, but nobody was thinking anything about it being this virus. Uh, And right on February 29th, we had our first diagnosis. 
And then we realized the extent of contact that it was here in our community. Um, we had multiple members test positive, 16 total positive. At one point in time, we had 90 of our 700 members quarantined or told they can't come into work, but it made its way throughout the department. And that's when we got right at the end of February, we realized we need to do a lot more. And that's when we clamped down and we tried to get the word out to everyone else that, hey, it's here, folks, and we all need to think different. Sean, um, for a long time, we all thought the first coronavirus death uh, in the U.S. was in Washington State in late February. Uh, but it turns out that that's not the case. And uh, your members in Local 230 and San Jose Fire Department have quite an interesting story, not just to tell, but to share. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, and this is why it has been so hard to understand exactly where the infections come from and why having presumptive workers' compensation is important because we're expected to tie it to a specific exposure to a specific person. I got it on this date and time. What happened in San Jose is we started to see cases among our members at the very end of February and early March, and that's when it really blew up for us, and we, we worked our way through that. But the question of where did this all start became a big, big question mark. And what we now know is that it had been circulating in our communities long before we had thought it was. In fact, the coroner finally uh, did an autopsy and released results for a patient who had passed away on February 6th uh, and determined there was coronavirus in this person's heart in this person's lungs and other parts of the body. They had passed due to a, a rupture of a, a valve in the heart. Local county ambulance ran on that patient. San Jose Fire ran on that patient. And how many other patients we ran on that nobody knows were COVID positive back in early February because we weren't testing everybody. We just weren't doing what we're doing now. The, the governor has asked that coroners go back and review all cases going back into January, I think even into December. I'm sure we're all gonna see more and more examples of where coronavirus was present in our communities and the exposure we were having without even realizing it. How did you figure out that your members had answered this call? So this was a huge learning for us. We would have thought when the coroner conducts an autopsy and determines this was a COVID patient back in early February, uh, immediately somehow public health would get notified and calls would be made to everyone who's involved, the police officers, firefighters, ambulance personnel, everyone. Um, we actually first heard about it in the news, and a name was reported. A member Googled that name, and an address came up. And we looked at that address, and sure enough, that address corresponded to the date. Uh, that isn't how contact tracing should work. <laughs> and that's why AB 432 needs to have more automated process that automatically trigger and notify us, because we're ask, being asked to prove when did we get exposed, when we want workers' compensation for the sickness, but we have no way to prove that without going through these crazy steps. At one point, you had a, a, approximately 90 members exposed. How did the city, how did the fire department, how did the local, how did you guys deal with that as far as uh, quarantining or, or holding people at work? Uh, um, how did that process go? At first hit, we tried to look up the CDC guidelines. We talked to public health and everyone was figuring this out at the same time. And so there's a wide range of thoughts about how to do things. And we had preliminary recommended guidelines 
no rules, no hard policies. Um, but we tried to follow those guidelines. And those guidelines were a formula. And when you applied the formula, you realize anyone that came into contact with someone that had coronavirus, if you didn't have protection on, you were quarantined. And so you can imagine how quickly that impacts everybody else. And then it got into a second layer. Well, if I've been exposed, there started to be talks about asymptomatic carriers. Oh, well, I was exposed. Um, I come back to work. Then everyone who's been in contact with me, do we need to quarantine them? Then you have people who show up to work and they have a cough. And okay, that's a symptomatic person. Everyone in the station goes home quarantined. And you apply that math to aggressively, it can be challenging. And it, the equations have changed over time. We now realize, hey, if you're exposed but asymptomatic, yes, we'll quarantine you, but not everyone you came into contact with. But it, it created a lot of anxiety because there was not hard and fast rules. Every doctor we spoke right. with said, we don't know. We're still trying to figure it out. How many members um, ended up becoming symptomatic? So now there's the interesting discussion. Uh, we had members at the time who didn't quite cross the line for having a fever, but felt under the weather. So now we don't really know if they had the virus because there was no testing available. Remember back then, it was real hard to get a test. Um, we have other ones who had symptoms, but their doctors said, well, that's not enough of a symptom for me to send you in for testing because there's so few tests. And basically, people who we think need to be on a ventilator, we want them tested. But if you're doing okay and can just stay at home, just do that and we'll get back to you later. So we don't have a real good number of how many had symptoms and how many, uh, you know, how many should have been tested. Uh, it's probably, in addition to the 15, 16 that tested positive, there's probably another 10 or 15 that definitely had symptoms that we'd now say, yeah, that was probably the virus or should have been checked for the virus. Now, I mean, I don't want to get um, too invasive on, on members' privacy and such, but did you guys actually have members that were, hey, you need to go to the hospital symptoms that were serious enough that a member would need to go to the hospital? Yeah, so that was our, our very uh, earliest uh, people who caught the virus. We had one go to the hospital, be put in the ICU, and be given a lot of attention to get the O2 saturation up with shortness of breath. Um, and that is what raised up the concern of a lot of others because it was a relatively young, very healthy, active firefighter. Uh, and seeing that happen, it raised the concerns that you know, this could be any one of us. As others got it, the symptoms ranged uh, from a real bad flu, where you're just laid up in bed, just, you know, <laughs> don't, don't feel like getting out of bed for a week, uh, to a, a minor fever that passed in a day, or a nagging cough that just wouldn't go away. So it was really the full spectrum. Got it. And, and to close the loop, Every, all the members that had it are well into recovery and doing well today. Yes, we still have uh, some that are positive, uh, but their symptoms have subsided. We still have mild pneumonia-like symptoms, but everyone is out of the hospital, and it's kind of uh, just general recovery care at this point, treat the symptoms and, and wait for it to pass. I kind of feel like firefighters in California have been dealing with this illness a, a little bit longer than we all thought initially. And it, it seems like your experience in San Jose um, tends to bear that out. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we just don't know at this point. It's the great unknown. We all, as we talk to members now, 
people are talking about having been sick in, in January. The worst flu they've ever had been laid up, you know, in early January, even late December. And so there is no certainty about whether it was here or was that something totally different? Which kind of will kind of lead into uh, a second part of this discussion. We had a discussion with you and uh, Rick Martinez, uh, the executive director of the California Fire Foundation, both the foundation yourself as president of Local 230, uh, had a conference call with uh, Stanford University. And uh, we're going to uh, enter into an agreement to do some testing in Santa Clara County. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I know you don't have to get super deep into it, but based on what happened in San Jose and and how this affected a large fire department in the state of California and the fact that we have this contact tracking to, I don't want to say a patient zero, but certainly a fatality um, early in February and that direct exposure, what could this type of a study mean um, for our members in San, not, not just um, San Jose, but Santa Clara County and then potentially the kind of information that, that we could glean from that for all firefighters across California. Sure. So, so let's build up to that and then talk about where we are. As yes, this absolutely. Hit, we, we knew we needed policies to keep our members safe. We knew we needed equipment to keep them safe. And the department was great about trying to figure out all those answers, distribute the equipment, the cleaning supplies, N95s and upgraded P100s, and, and try to take care of all of that. Um, we then knew we needed members uh, to get testing, and we were able to get testing for every member with symptoms. We then had many members who felt they had symptoms that don't check the box or were told, you need a, a test to come back to work, but because you don't have symptoms, we won't approve a test. So we were able to get approval for every member with symptoms or without symptoms to get testing. We then had members who were worried about um, not being able to return home, that they had a positive diagnosis. They didn't want to be uh, quarantined at home or someone at home was sick and they didn't want to get exposed to them. Uh, so we're able to get free local housing for every member that was impacted by that. So that gets us to the stage we are now where all those protections are in place. We see the wave was definitely flattened, but we don't know what the impact has been. Many members feel like they had the virus, but aren't sure. And we need to understand that if immunity means anything, do 5% of us have this or have 50% of us had this? Once they determine what immunity might mean, we want to know those numbers. So with the help of the California Fire Foundation and with the enthusiastic support of Stanford Medicine, um, we are working to dot the I's and cross the T's and launch a study here to be able to see how many members have antibodies and do virus testing uh, in a way that's available to every member right now and get a comprehensive assessment if, if there are asymptomatic carriers today, as well as how many people actually had this over the past three months. That'll help them in terms of understanding whether the sickness was related to that, and it'll help uh, a bunch of other decisions to be made, and I think it'll inform the general firefighter population. I understand they're, they're going to be doing blood serum and then also um, swab testing. So yes, the testing we're looking at doing does both virus testing and uh, antibody testing. The virus testing uses the nasal swab that gets deep high up in the nasal cavity and runs through a computer PCR test. Uh, on the antibody testing, we've been putting a lot of work into figuring out what are good antibody tests. And the reality is when a test is 95% accurate, if you get a positive result, that means really a 50-50 chance that you had the virus based on where, what we think the prevalence is. 
So we need a very, very accurate test. And today, uh, some of the tests out there, the $30 like pregnancy type tests called lateral assay tests, they may say they're 95%, 96%, but then other people test them and come up with a much lower number. We just weren't confident in that. And what Stanford brings to the table, a type of test where you take a vial of blood, 10 milliliters of blood, and run it through an ELISA analyzing process that will determine not just qualitatively, but also quantitatively the level of antibodies in your blood, both the IgM and the IgG. So very good quality test. Sean, do you, um, I know that you guys, um, you did a little bit of contact tracking or tracing internally. Um, uh, do, you, do you anticipate some of that continuing on in the county as, as we get a little bit more information to, to maybe build a, a stronger, a better background, or is that um, that that's just too time intensive for the moment. I think once the, once the cat is out of the bag on the virus, it's real hard to figure it out because I can say one patient had it and you may have had an exposure to that patient, but there was actually the patient on the call before that that you went on that you didn't think had it, but actually did. And to say, did you get it from a coworker? Did you get it from a patient? Did you get it at home? It becomes harder and harder to really chase all those details down. The probability of us getting it from a patient is extremely high. Once we have it, if we're in the station and asymptomatic, the chances of exchanging it among a crew that works together for 48 hours straight is also extremely high. So the probability is it's happened at work, but to say on this date from this person or this patient gets much more difficult. Sean, you and I had a little bit of a discussion about AB 432, and that is the legislation that requires uh, hospitals to report any instances of communicable diseases to firefighters and ambulance responders. It is one of those areas that we've been having a little bit of a disconnect. Have you guys, members in Local 230, experienced kind of that same thing? Are the hospitals good about advising you of uh, communicable disease patients that have confirmed been brought in, or are you, are you seeing kind of the same issues that we're seeing in other parts of California, that there is a, a drop and a disconnect there. The requirements from AB 432, I, I think are noble and good. I think many hospitals have developed processes that work until they don't. And that, that's the challenge we're seeing, that we have definitely received notifications that we've been on calls. I've gotten that call from our designated exposure control officer saying, hey, that patient you're on was a COVID positive patient. We have a diagnosis. Um, but I've also been on calls where uh, I run into the ambulance crew a week later and they say, hey, wasn't it crazy? That person tested positive. And I'm looking at them like, I, I never got that call. So we know there are holes in the system. Uh, we know we've had patients who were told by the doctor they're positive and need to be brought in and they get transported. And yet we never got a call you know, as public health or the hospital should saying that process needs to be closed. Fundamentally, I think we have a great process that works for the one-off measles or meningitis or tuberculosis, it doesn't scale to a pandemic. When they, they can't even do testing and they're overwhelmed, the contact tracing and the people it takes to call everyone involved in the process, I just don't think was happening to the degree it needs to, which needs to be 100%. Departments have an infectious um, disease or an infectious control officer that they designate. And this would be that time, whether it's a uh, an EMS captain, an EMS battalion, whoever it is who's ever got that designation, this is a time for that person to be aggressively pursuing the hospitals and the and the EDs that are in their area 
to make sure that they're getting all the information. This this is one of those periods of time where that position is not a laissez-faire position. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'd like to see more automation to it. Our uh, exposure control officers are members of San Jose Firefighters Local 230. They want to do everything they can to help us out, um, but they also work on shifts. They're dealing with five hospitals and 10 administrators at each hospital. And in this situation, people move from uh, childbirth delivery, move down to the ER to handle the influx of patients expected. So the systems weren't really there and they're talking to a different person every time. It makes it a real challenge. The more automated it could be, we've automated our PCRs. There should be ability to get that automated feedback, giving you the notification. Yeah. In the last two years, um, the CPF EMS committee has been um, very active. And I think um, as we're just having this discussion and thinking this is infectious, infectious disease or control officer is one that we need to get on the agenda of the EMS committee and see if we, from the labor standpoint, can help strengthen and build that to better protect our members. The other one that everybody asks about is AB664, which is uh, presumptive for COVID exposure. We're all kind of holding on to um, holding on to our binders and and you know ready to ready to go to work for the moment. Sit tight, but pay attention to leadership alerts. That's ongoing as we speak. Sean, I wanted to ask you about this. You're an active fire captain in a department that got hit pretty hard by the virus and is and is on the other side of that. How's it affected you and your members? You know, frankly, we have members who have people at home that are uh, receiving cancer treatment and are immunosuppressed, or they have a second generation, their, their parents or even grandparents living with them. They themselves don't want to bring anything home. And those people at home are saying, we don't want you to bring anything home. We have people sleeping in garages. We have people that haven't been home in a month and a half just out of that respect for their family members and not wanting to create that, uh, you know, that exposure risk. No one wants to carry that guilt on them. Uh, that's a lot of stress. And then in stations with the uncertainty, you know, looking at each other, where, where have you worked overtime? Where, where have you been? Because we're short staffed. So there's only so many people and lots of rigs that need to be filled. Uh, people get mandated over time or, or fill in various spots. And as we move around, everyone, you know, you kind of look at each other like, we're, oh, you were at that station where I heard there was a problem, or you ran on those calls with a population that's a high risk. Uh, it's just the uncertainty. And that's another reason why we think the, the antibody testing, virus testing will help answer a lot of questions where right now there's just question marks. Here in Sacramento County, uh, the county extended the uh, shelter-in-place stay-at-home until the end of May. And you and I both know uh, the weather's turning in California. Um, it's mountain bike weather. It's hiking weather. It's go-to-the-beach weather. And people are getting antsy and at different de- degrees of being patient. This, this, There's no, no doubt this has been an economic disaster for California. But I... You know, with the social distancing and all the things we're doing, a lot of us have not been in the middle of it, Sean, like you and your members have. And so from from where you're standing, what advice would you give the rest of us? You know, we've been sheltering in place. We've been going to work. You know, we, we just we haven't been where you're at. And um, for you having to have been been for the last few months and your members where you're at, are we doing the right things? And um, 
and, and any words of wisdom you would have for us? You know, I, I don't know if I have the right answers, but my, my thoughts on that are definitely that CPF and IFF have put out a good list of guidelines we all need to be following on procedures on calls about sending the first person in, the scout, minimizing contacts, having the right PPE, having exposure control policies, uh, mask rules, if you want to do masks in the station, however you want to do that to minimize where it goes, daily testing to prevent it spreading within fire stations to, to be able to self-identify when uh, you might have a fever you weren't even quite aware of. I, I think those things are pretty well spelled out. Being able to get testing is still a challenge many people have and needs to be addressed. I was pleased to see down in LA, they just announced, the, the mayor announced testing for every resident, um, symptoms or not. And I hope that pans out. It helps us firefighters as well and it helps the public identify those issues. I feel like right now, the next big aspect of this is what you just alluded to, which is the economic aspect. And I feel like we are back in December or January um, and the economic wave is just before us in the next two or three months. I know the San Jose City Departments have been asked for 18% uh, pay cut. There's 18% uh, uh, budget reductions. There is going to be freezes. There will be layoffs. There will be reductions in service and changes to library hours and all of that at the exact same time as the economy is trying to get back on its feet. And if that flattens this recovery and it stretches out and the Wall Street doesn't recover, We'll be hearing talks about pension plans and all those things again. And that's just a whole other level of stress on everybody, right? We all have contract negotiations. We all need stability in our wages. Uh, property taxes haven't gone down or any of that. And so on top of having been on the front lines of a public health crisis, we are going to feel the economic impact here, but probably just three, four, five months behind the general population. And as you know, union leaders had recommend really getting ahead of that now, because if you're not already worried, working on the economic impact, it's going to hit you just like uh, COVID hit us. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, is there anything else that's important that we, we may not have touched on that you'd like to add? You know, I think that hit a lot of it. The one thing we didn't really talk about was uh, behavioral wellness support for members. Um, they're going through a lot and it's uncomfortable to share when you feel uncertain, everyone wants to be the strong, stable firefighter. Um, but sometimes when they're at stations and they don't mingle with a lot of other crews, they start sharing the news and the one-off gossips about uh, worst case scenarios and things. And uh, just communicating we found was very helpful for us, but also having those uh, you know, peer support teams, behavioral wellness teams and options and places they can talk to people, kind of talk through what they're feeling Dealing with uncertainty was a super hard part of this. We're still dealing with uncertainty, uh, but that's probably the biggest piece I didn't mention that uh, has, has been an ongoing challenge and probably will be a challenge for the coming months. That is, that is one for all members that are, that are hearing this. Your job, it's dangerous and stressful under normal circumstances. This, this circumstance that you're, uh, the members are facing now is not normal. Um, it just is added over and above. There's no reason for a member right now to suffer in silence. There are several ways to reach out. This is not the time to be silent or turn yourself in on yourself. Now, now is the time that if it's brewing inside, you need to talk to a brother or sister about it to get it off your chest and get it in a point, get it in a point in a position that you can have a healthy way to diffuse and deal with it and, and move forward. 
Sean, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing sharing this story, advocating so hard on behalf of the brothers and sisters of San Jose Firefighters Local 230. Um, I have watched you, as have many of us, uh, in the last several weeks, and you certainly, um, for me and a lot of members I know, are kind of you're our first phone call on on fire service and COVID related situations. And my hat is off to you and, and my gratitude for you and the members of Local 230 for everything that you're doing and protecting your community. Um, we just thank you. For brothers and sisters throughout the state who may be listening, remember uh, under AB 432, you do have the right to be informed if one of your patients has been infected with COVID. If it's not happening, let us know. We'll keep you posted on the progress of our COVID presumptive as we move forward into May. Uh, in the meantime, operate to your training and your protocols. Train as if your life depends on it because it does. The more familiar you are with your local EMS protocols, the better you're going to be. Operate with caution and operate to the maximum uh, of your training. And with that, I'm Brian Rice, President of California Professional Firefighters. Until next time, be careful out there. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.